Okay. Show me. Sometimes that is better. Welcome to the Prairie Land Paranormal Podcast. Be sure you never, ever scream. A podcast where we will explore the dark corners of our world, the weird, the creepy, and the strange. There are no accidents, no coincidences. I am your host, Eric Carrier. The Boogeyman is real. And they must be coming night. My co-host is Jessica Carrier. Thank you for joining us for a journey into the unknown. Be one of us. Let's get started with today's show. Hey guys, welcome to the show. This is the Prairie Land Paranormal Podcast, and I am your host, Eric. I'm here as always with my wife and my co-host, Jessica. Jess, it's a cold day in Illinois. It is freezing. No snow out there, but I think it's like 14 degrees. I'm glad we're inside today. Me too. What do we have in store for our listeners? Today, we are going to be discussing cryptids. In fact, we have scoured the internet looking for some of the strangest and weirdest we could find. Trust me when I say that every cryptid on this list is bizarre and includes one that melts and one that explodes. All right. Well, I'm excited for this episode because cryptids is one of my favorite things to talk about. And this exploding cryptid that we're hinting about, this is one that I had never even heard of before myself. So I'm thinking you're probably in that same boat. But first, we do have to wade through some self-promotion. We know that you guys probably hate this part of the show. So to keep you from fast forwarding, we are going to keep it short and simple. Basically, it boils down to this. Thank you for listening. Please keep sharing the show, check out our website if you're interested in merch or leaving a tip, leave a review, and subscribe to our social media channels. We have accounts on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube, and love to hang out and meet you guys there. We also have a new TikTok channel you can check out. As far as merch, we've just added 12 new t-shirt designs, and let me tell you, they are freaking awesome. Please go check them out. Jess, is there anything else? Nope. Okay. Let's get started with today's show. The woods are full of fearsome, bizarre, and strange creatures. We have dug deep, and here are five of the strangest, most bizarre, and most fearsome that we could find. Let's start with the squonk. When it comes to strange and bizarre cryptids, the squonk probably takes the cake. The squonk is a creature of myth and legend, and is reportedly the ugliest of all living things. Tales of this homely creature originated in northern Pennsylvania in the 19th century, and suggest that the creature allegedly lives in the hemlock forests of the state. The first documentation of this legend is found in William Cox's 1910 book, fearsome creatures of the lumberwoods with a few desert and mountain beasts. Cox gave the creature its scientific name, which is Lacrimocorpus dissolvens, which is made up of the Latin words tear, body, and dissolve, and refers to the squonk's supposed ability to dissolve when captured. Here is what Cox had to say about the creature. The range of the squonk is very limited. Few people outside of Pennsylvania have ever heard of the quaint beast, which is said to be fairly common in the hemlock forests of that state. 
The squonk is of a very retiring disposition, generally traveling about at twilight and dusk. Because of its misfitting skin, which is covered with warts and moles, it is always unhappy, in fact it is said, by people who are best able to judge, to be the most morbid of beasts. Hunters who are good at tracking are able to follow a squonk by its tear-stained trail, for the animal weeps constantly. When cornered an escape seems impossible, or when surprised and frightened, it may even dissolve itself in tears. Squonk hunters, are most successful on frosty moonlight nights, when tears are shed slowly and the animal dislikes moving about. It may then be heard weeping under the boughs on dark hemlock trees. Mr. J.P. Wentling, formerly of Pennsylvania, but now at St. Anthony Park, Minnesota, had a disappointing experience with a squonk near Monalto. He made a clever capture by mimicking the squonk and inducing it to hop into a sack, in which he was carrying it home, when suddenly the burden lightened and weeping ceased. Wentling unslung the sack and looked in. There was nothing but tears and bubbles. This epic hunt was chronicled by the band Genesis in their song, Squonk. Here are a few lines from that song. Jess, I'm familiar with Genesis. I am definitely a child of the uh, 80s and 90s, but I don't think that I've ever heard that song before. Have you heard that song before? No, I have never heard the song before. It is catchy, though. It's going to be in my head the rest of the day. <laughs> yes. Jessica, you have experience with uh, being a homely creature. Uh, how's, <laughs> how does that feel? Well, it doesn't feel good, and I guess I can relate to the squonk. So next time that I find you in a pile of tears, can I just say you're squawking it out? <laughs> not if you want to live. Folks, that is just a joke. Jessica is not homely, at least not to me. All right, let's get back to the squonk. All right, there's a second description of the squonk that can be found in Henry Tyron's 1939 book, Fearsome Critters. Here is how he described the creature. The squonk is probably the homeliest animal in the world and knows it. The distribution was once fairly wide, the usual habitat being high plains where desert vegetation was abundant. History shows beyond dispute that as these areas gradually changed to swampy, lake-dotted country, the squonk was forced to take to the water. Of distinctly low mentality it traveled constantly around the unaccustomed marshes in search of fodder. With time, it developed webbing between its toes, but only on the submerged left feet. Hence, on entering the water it could swim only in circles and never got back to shore. Fossil bones dredged from these lake bottoms reveal that thousands perished of starvation in this manner. Today the squonk is met with solely in the hemlock forests of Pennsylvania. Its retiring bashful, crepuscular animal, garbed in a loose, warty, singularly ill-fitting skin. The squonk is always unhappy, even morbid. He is given to constant weeping over his really upsetting appearance, and can sometimes be tracked by his tear-stained trail. Moonlight nights are best for squonk hunts, for then the animal prefers to lie quiet in its hemlock home, fearing, should it venture forth, 
that it may catch a glimpse of itself in some moonlit pool. Sometimes you can hear one weeping softly to himself. The sound is a low note of pleading somewhat resembling the call of the cross-feathered snee. <laughs> Just this cryptid sounds ridiculous. Yes, it is the wimpiest cryptid I've ever heard of. I'm beginning to think that uh, maybe it doesn't really exist. I sure hope not, because if we're going to have a cryptid out there, I want it to be something cool, not something sobbing and blubbery. This thing is definitely coming across as the Eeyore of the cryptid world. <laughs> so after reading that, I wanted to look up the cross-feathered snee and see if I could find some of its calls to share. And it turns out I cannot find any information on any type of bird called a snee at all. So I'm thinking maybe the snee is also a little bit of a fable. Maybe it's one of the cryptids in this book. I don't know. But can you imagine being a hunter or a woodsman out at night and just seeing this creature out in the lake swimming around in circles and <laughs> swimming around in circles and swimming around in circles and it's just... <laughs> it would be pretty strange. It just seems very, very ridiculous. And if they had truly collected all of these bones, there should be some actual evidence of this cryptid, which there is not. And all these accounts seem to say something to the effect that it's crying because it's so ugly or something like that. How do they know why it's crying? How do they know it's even crying and not like secreting toxins or poisons? It's just such a weird, bizarre tale of a weird creature. Well, I guarantee you that if there was something actually called a squonk and someone caught one, someone probably tried to lick it. People lick toads <laughs> all the time. And uh, that's how we know it wasn't toxins or poisons because that person survived and went on to tell their tale <laughs> or they went on to have a trippy experience and just stood there and watched an animal swim in circles <laughs> for hours <laughs> so for any of you squonk hunters out there if you do catch one please lick it we need to know <laughs> what it's made out of so Jess, when I was a kid, I was in Boy Scouts, and I remember the leaders at times being like, hey, you guys want to go on a snipe hunt? Have you ever heard of a snipe, Jess? Oh, yes, definitely. So a snipe is actually a real type of bird, but a snipe hunt is a practical joke in which the snipe hunter is basically left out in the woods alone with a bag, making a bunch of strange noises, trying to attract this mythical creature, this imaginary creature called a snipe. And it's a rite of passage, and it's common in America, and it's practiced in a lot of summer camps and Boy Scout camps and things like that. And basically, it's used to promote camaraderie between the leaders and the boys, but it's also used to get a good laugh. So I suspect that the squonk is probably an equivalent to the snipe. What do you think, Jess? That's a good idea. It, it's strange there are actually two books where this creature has been featured, but it's really hard to believe in it. I will say that there are a lot of strange creatures in those two books, and most of them, if not all of them, are considered to be tall tales shared between lumberjacks and other woodsmen. I will also say that I attempted to look up any real squonk encounters and i could not find a single one except for the one that was accounted for in cox's book so if you happen to be out in the lumberwoods of pennsylvania you can go on a squonk hunt but uh, don't expect to catch anything but uh, disappointment 
So Jess, what's our next strange creature? Our next bizarre cryptid is the Snallygaster. Yeah, tales of this cryptid uh, have been around for at least four centuries. Yeah, tales of the Snallygaster, a bird reptile chimera, are mainly associated with Maryland, particularly Frederick County, especially the areas of South Mountain and Middleton Valley. There have also been reports coming out of Central Maryland and even the Washington, D.C. metro area. Sightings of this creature originated with the German immigrants that settled in the Frederick County, Maryland area starting in about the 1730s. Early accounts describe the community being terrorized by a monster called a Snellergeist or a Snellengeist, which in German translates to quick ghost. For years, the Snallygaster only lived on the pages of folklore. Then in 1909, stories began to appear in newspapers that recounted encounters between local residents and this winged creature between February and March of 1909. The articles described the beast as having enormous wings, a long pointed bill, claw-like steel hooks, tentacles around its beak, and a single eye in the center of its forehead. Further, it was said to make screeches like a locomotive whistle. So just right off the bat, this description gives me a couple of concerns. So I have no problem with enormous wings, a long pointed bill, and claw-like steel hooks. That all sounds very much like a bird. But when you add in tentacles around its beak and a single eye in its forehead, that's really strange. I can't think of any mammal or avian that I've ever seen or heard of that has tentacles. I mean, that's like... Well, maybe it's like a comb that a bird has or something. I don't know. I mean, it's really described as tentacles, like an octopus tentacle around its beak. I'd just say it's a lot cooler than our last cryptid. Oh, it's definitely cooler. But evolutionary, it doesn't make sense. That's the mixing of marine and avian. And there's no other creature that I know of that has that type of feature. Are you aware of any? No, it's completely foreign to me. Okay, so I just did a quick Google search, and there is one mammal that does have tentacle-like appendages around its mouth, and that is a star mole. But these are not used for grasping or pulling. They are simply used for sensory input. This sounds a lot like a squid, right? Yeah, what do you have? Tentacles surrounding a beak that would grasp its prey and pull it in. And that certainly makes this creature a chimera, where it would have to be a mixture between different creatures combined into one. Yeah, which is kind of like other cryptids, like Bigfoot or Dogman. Yes, but what makes this one unique is that it's not a mammal mixed with another mammal. It's a marine creature mixed with a avian. So that makes it truly unique and unlike any other cryptid that I've ever heard of. The other thing that doesn't really make sense evolutionary-wise is a single eye. Birds are known to have fantastic sight. Eagles and hawks, for example, can spy their prey from very, very long distances. But that's because they have binocular vision and not monocular vision. The problem with monocular vision is that you lose almost 
all depth perception, and that is not idealistic for a bird of any sort. Yes, in real life, there are very few animals only have one eye. But in mythology, you have things like Cyclops that has one eye. So it almost sounds a little more mythological. Most of the time, when you see cycloptic vision or monocular vision, it is a birth defect. And it's a creature that is severely deformed. This is not genetically advantageous at all. Now, false eyes are seen on a lot of creatures, and they're used in adventitious ways to either confuse prey or to lure prey. So what would make more sense, instead of having a single eye in the center of its head, would be to have some sort of a plume or a false eye there that would confuse prey. That's a good idea. I didn't think about that. What about the size of the creature, Jessica? Well, apparently it was big enough to pick up a man. A February 1909 article claimed that a man had been seized by the winged creature which proceeded to sink its teeth into the jugular and drain the body of blood before dropping it along the hillside. This story was carried prominently in the Middleton, Maryland Valley's register and soon spread far and wide, so much so that the Smithsonian Institution offered a reward for the hide and U.S. President Theodore Roosevelt reportedly considered postponing an international trip to personally hunt the beast. In the early newspaper issues, the flying beast seemed to be everywhere at once, making appearances in New Jersey, West Virginia, and even Ohio. In New Jersey, it was reported that its footprints were discovered in the snow. In West Virginia, it was said that the flying beast almost caught a woman near Scrabble, was found roosting in a farmer's barn, and even laid an egg the size of a barrel near Sharpsburg. A man in Castown, Ohio, wrote a letter to the Valley Register, telling of a strange creature that flew over his area making terrible screeching noises. He described the creature as having two huge wings, a large horny head, and a tail 20 feet long. In Maryland, it was first sighted by a man who operated a brick-burning kiln near Cumberland. Spied near the kiln sleeping, when it awoke, it emitted a blood-curdling scream and angrily flew away. It was also sighted near Hagerstown, south of Middletown, at Lover's Leap, and seen flying over the mountains between Gapland and Burkittsville, where it was reported to have laid another very large egg. The last sighting in Fredericks County occurred in March 1909, where three men bought the creature outside a railroad station for nearly an hour and a half before chasing it into the woods of Carroll County. Afterward, there was no more sightings of the mysterious creature for the next 23 years, at which time it was again seen in Frederick County, Maryland. The first reports said that the bird was seen just below South Mountain in Washington County. It was surmised at the time that the life expectancy of a snallygaster was probably about 20 years, making the new sightings the offspring of the creature from 1909. So, Jess, does that then suggest that it takes 20 years for the eggs to hatch? It could mean that it has a 20-year mating cycle. So they only come out of the mountains to mate and lay eggs every 20 years. 
or it takes 20 years for the young ones to mature to the point where they can hunt. Yes, that is another possibility. Descriptions of this creature varied so wildly that the Middleton Valley Register requested that local residents who spied the creature should provide as accurate and detailed a description as possible for scientific purposes. Two residents soon reported having seen it just east of Braddock Heights, flying about 25 feet overhead, confirming the descriptions published the previous weeks. The next major report about the Snallygaster was that it had died in Washington County. Apparently, the creature, overcome by the fumes of a moonshine still, fell from the sky and landed in a 2,500-gallon vat of alcohol. According to the story, revenue agents soon arrived and destroyed both the vat and the carcass of the beast. So, apparently, the Snallygaster drank himself to death. (laughs) Drowned in alcohol. Either way, there have been no appearances of the Snallygaster since. Well, one additional interesting fact about the Snallygaster is that it did have one widely known enemy called the Dueo. The Dueo is reported to be a mammalian biped with features similar to a wolf, but the stance and stature of a human. So to me, Eric, the Dueo sounds like a dogman. Definitely. The Dueo and the Snallygaster have reportedly had vicious encounters dating back to early settlements of the Middleton Valley. That sounds like an epic battle, and I would love to see it. Yes, that would be amazing. Another interesting fact is that seven-pointed stars were apparently effective at keeping Snallygasters away, and you can see these hex signs still painted on a lot of local barns today. So, it's basically the kryptonite for the Snallygaster? Yep. Go out and get yourself a seven-pointed star and put it on your house today. It will keep all cryptids away. As a matter of fact, look for seven-pointed stars coming soon in our merch department. (laughs) (laughs) So here's a question, Eric. Was it all a hoax? Well, possibly. As it turns out, this story was popularized by the Middletown Valley Register during a time when journalistic integrity was in question. And papers often published wild stories to increase readership. And George C. Roderick and uh, reporter Ralph S. Wolf were suspected of inventing the creature by borrowing upon German folklore, including things like dragons who used to snatch children and livestock, and combining it with other popular stories of the time, including that of the Jersey Devil, that had just been spotted just a couple weeks before their paper started running the stories of the Snallygaster. So it could have been a hoax, and it could have been simply a trick to increase readership of the newspaper. Whether it was a hoax or not, the legacy of the Snallygaster continues today, with its popularity rising and making appearances in pop culture. This includes the Harry Potter universe, where J.K. Rawlings incorporated the Snallygaster into her book, fantastic beasts, and where to find them. If you like whiskey, maybe check out Dragon Distillery's Snallygaster Blended Whiskey. Or if you like beer, check out the Snallygaster Beastly Beer Jamboree, which is an annual beer festival in Washington, D.C. If it's ice cream you're looking for, South Mountain Creamery, a dairy located in Frederick County, Maryland, produces a flavor named Snallygaster, 
which consists of peanut butter flavored ice cream with a caramel swirl, peanut butter cups, and pretzels. That actually sounds really good. Yeah, we're going to pause the show right here and uh, we're going to go get some ice cream. (laughs) There is even a Snallygaster Museum, which will soon be open in Liberty Town, Maryland. This is curated by Sarah Cooper, who is a fellow podcaster and a cryptozoologist. Go, Sarah. Yeah, go, Sarah. If you want to check out her podcast, it's called Manic Pixie Dream Ghouls, and uh, you should be able to find it on any podcast player. So, Eric, it looks like the legend and the legacy of the Snallygaster isn't leaving anytime soon. Nope, it looks like it's going to be around for a very long time. But as far as I know, no bands have made a Snallygaster song. So, (laughs) Genesis, if you're looking to get back together, then uh, you might want to consider making a song about uh, good old Snally here. Jess, I think our next cryptid is uh, taking us to Wisconsin, right? Yeah, we're going to get right into the Hodag. What is the Hodag? It's kind of a really interesting fabled animal from the city of Rhinelander, Wisconsin. There is even a large statue of this creature in front of the city's Chamber of Commerce. Yes, I've actually been to Rhinelander and I've laid eyes on this statue and it's big. I didn't know that. Yeah, a couple years ago when I went on the high adventure trip with our two older boys, uh, that trip was in Rhinelander, and part of that trip was a visit to the Chamber of Commerce to see that big statue. That is cool. So reports of this creature started in 1893. Jessica, give us a description of what the creature looks like. Yeah, there's several different descriptions, but the main one is that it's a bullhorned carnivore with thick spines running down its back. Is also described as having a frog-like head, grinning elephant face, thick short legs, and huge claws, and back like a dinosaur, the long tail with spears at the end. A few additional reports say that it has green eyes, huge fangs, horns coming out of its head, and if that isn't scary enough, the hodag is reported to breathe fire and smoke and smell like a combination of buzzard meat and skunk perfume. Mmm, smells good. There were also some reports about its size. It was reported to be 7 feet long and 30 inches tall, and speculation was that it was about 200 pounds. So, all in all, this thing sounds kind of like a giant alligator dragon. Maybe a lizard gila monster? I don't know, something like that. Either way, it is definitely a fearsome critter, and it ended up in the Fearsome Critters book written by Henry Tyron in 1939. Here's what he has to say about the Hodag. Reported in Maine many years past, and in 1895 captured and positively identified near Rhinelander, Wisconsin, by Mr. E.S. Shepard, the Hodag is indubitably one of the best known of the larger and more dangerous woods varmints. It is now very rare, probably owing to the increased use of lemons in cookery, for hodags and citrus fruits are in the same ratio as wolves and wolfbane, probably more so. A distressingly ugly animal, the knobbledy head wears a pair of prominent, bulging eyes and two heavy lateral horns something after the fashion of a male stag beetle. The claws are stout and powerful, the tail carries a terminal hook, while a row of jagged, stegosaurian dorsal spines complete the picture. The smaller front teeth were formerly often used for umbrella handles. The hodag is fully aware of his upsetting appearance, and is given to frequent fits of bitter weeping. I once had a handful of the extremely rare crystallized hodag tears, but an acquisitive lady friend collected them, 
believing them to be fine amber. She had them strung into a neck yoke, and then went and spilled a Tom Collins on herself. Of course, the lemon juice dissolved them instantly. This fellow can't endure being laughed at. When angry, he is fierce and dangerously aggressive. But a pair of lemons is ample protection against a whole herd. So here we have another weepy creature who is scared of citrus. <laughs> that sounds like a really interesting creature. So if you're going out into the woods near Rhinelander, Wisconsin, make sure you're carrying some sort of citrus with you. Apparently a pair of lemons works really great. <laughs> so Jess, tell us more about E.S. Shepard. Well, E.S. Shepard, or Eugene Shepard, was a local logger who probably hoaxed the whole hodag story. I say probably because the hodag actually resembles some Ojibwe pictographs of Misupishu or a water panther. This means that Eugene likely blended the Ojibwe legend with his own. Either way, he fired up the locals with the stories of this amazing creature, and by 1893, several newspapers across the country were teeming with articles that a new terrifying creature named the Hodag was wreaking havoc in Wisconsin. The Hodag story spread quickly from there, and Shepard gathered a group of loggers together to capture the beast. As the story goes, a group of young men used hunting dogs, rifles, and squirt guns loaded with poison water. I'm guessing that was probably <laughs> lemonade or orange juice. <laughs> Some kind of citrus. <laughs> to attack the Hodag. This went down unsuccessfully, and the group ended up having to use dynamite to successfully kill the fearsome creature. So when lemonade and orange juice doesn't work, reach for dynamite. That's what I always do. Shepard was back on the scene three years later with even a bigger claim that he had captured a live hodag. Jess, what did he use to capture that live hodag? This time he used bear wrestlers and chloroform. I didn't know there was such a thing as bear wrestlers, but I guess it was a thing in the 1800s. Is there a modern equivalent to a bear wrestler, or is that a uh, career of the past? <laughs> I think it's a career of the past. I can't seem to find bear wrestling as a search option on Indeed or ZipRecruiter. This show is not affiliated with Indeed or ZipRecruiter. So after capturing this beast, he does the most Barnum and Bailey type thing you've ever seen, and takes the beast to the fair, where he shows it off for a fee. Yeah, so this was the Oneida County Fair, and it said that literally thousands of people attended and paid to see this hodag. It was kept in a dark tent, and amazed onlookers said that they actually heard the hodag growl and even saw the creature move. The story of the hodag spread quickly, and soon national newspapers picked up the story. It wasn't long before the Smithsonian Institute in Washington, D.C. announced that it was going to be traveling to Wisconsin to inspect and study the new creature. It was at this time that Shepard was forced to step up and admit that the hodag was nothing more than the modern equivalent of Jabba the Hutt. Nothing more than a giant puppet that was made out of wood, ox leather, and moved with the help of wires and puppeteers. In the aftermath of this revelation, did the city of Rhinelander hang their head in shame? No. In fact, Rhinelander embraces the hodag and has even made the hodag the official symbol of Rhinelander. 
The Hodag is also the mascot of Rhinelander High School, and every summer, the Hodag County Festival draws thousands of music fans to Rhinelander, where beer drinkers can indulge in Hodag Ale, a green beer made specifically for the festival by the Rhinelander Brewing Company. The brewery says not to worry. Unlike the Fearsome Hodag, the beer is mellow and lacking bite. There's no comment as to whether the beer contains citrus. <laughs> All right, folks, stick around after the break, and we'll be back with two more Tales of Weird Cryptids. Fearscape, a paranormal podcast, part of the Fearscape Media Network. Prepare to be spooked. (laughs) New episodes every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms. Find out more at fearscapepodcast.com. All right, folks, we are back from the break and ready to get back into the conversation on some really strange cryptids. I think we've saved the two strangest for the last. Jess, what is the next one? The next one is called the Slide Rock Bolter. This creature comes to us from Colorado. And like most creatures that lumberjacks told stories about, the Slide Rock Bolter was probably conjured up late one night as part of a storytelling contest where lumberjacks competed to convince newcomers that fearsome critters lurked in the Colorado woods. Such is probably the origin of the Slide Rock Bolter, a carnivorous, mountain-dwelling, whale-like creature. The form of a whale was likely chosen because of its great size and distinctive tail, which suits the peculiar behavior of this particular cryptid who uses its tail to grasp onto the side of steep mountain slopes, before sliding down to devour its prey and then sliding up the other side of the mountain to perch and await its next victim. So if you're looking for a visual on this, imagine like a water park slide where you slide down one side like a bowl and then you slide back and then you slide down and back until the ride spits you out of the bottom. Except in this case, every time you get down the middle, you would eat a person and go back up, come back down, eat a person. Yeah, and there's no water involved. It's all just sliding down the rocks. This creature also makes an appearance in Cox's book, Fearsome Creatures of the Lumberwoods, and he even went as far as to give it a scientific name, which he called Macrostoma saxiperumptus, which is a combination of the words large, mouth, rock, and to break up. Cox describes the creature in this way in his book. It has an immense head, with small eyes, and a mouth somewhat on the order of a sculpin running back beyond its ears. The tail consists of a divided flipper, with enormous grab hooks, which it fastens over the crest of the mountain or ridge, often remaining there motionless for days at a time, watching the gulch for tourists or any other hapless creature that may enter it. At the right moment, after sighting a tourist, it will lift its tail, thus loosening its hold on the mountain, and with its small eyes riveted on the poor unfortunate, and drooling thin skid grease from the corners of its mouth, which greatly accelerates its speed, the bolter comes down like a toboggan scooping in its victim as it goes, its own impetus carrying it up the next slope, where it again slaps its tail over the ridge and waits. Whole parties of tourists are reported to have been gulped at one scoop by taking parties far back into the hills. 
The animal is a menace not only to tourists but to the woods as well. Many a draw through spruce-covered slopes has been laid low, the trees being knocked out by the roots or mowed off as by a scythe where the bolter has crashed down through from the peaks above. Cox goes on to describe how a forest ranger concocted a plan to kill one of these creatures. A forest ranger, whose district includes the rough county between Ofer Peaks and a lizard head, conceived the bold idea of decoying a slide rock bolter to its own destruction. A dummy tourist was rigged up with a plaid Norfolk jacket, knee breeches, and a guidebook to Colorado. It was then filled full of giant powder and fulminate caps and posted in a conspicuous place. Where, sure enough, the next day it attracted the attention of a bolter which had been hanging for days on the slope of Lizard Head. The resulting explosion flattened half the buildings in Rico, which were never rebuilt, and the surrounding hills fattened flocks of buzzards the rest of the summer. So just my favorite part about how they set this decoy up was how they dressed it. <laughs> Do you think that the dummy had to be dressed in a Norfolk jacket, knee breeches, and have a guidebook before the bolter really <laughs> had to take hold of it? You know, it's a very smart cryptid, and it would know if the disguise wasn't genuine. Jess, do you know what a Norfolk jacket is anyway? I do not. I guess we should look that up. <laughs> so I actually did look it up, and uh -huh. it's a English-style tweed jacket with a uh, belt that wraps around the center of it. Exactly what you would expect for an archaeologist or a tourist to be wearing. So this was a very fashionable decoy. Yes, you tie that jacket in with those knee breeches, and uh, this was a very, very fashionable decoy. I love the detail that they included a guidebook, because that's what really sold it, I think. <laughs> so if they had like a, a shotgun or something like that, then the bolter would know not to mess with it. But having a guidebook and a tweed jacket, come on. It shows that you come in peace, even though you're full of dynamite. <laughs> so what is the truth to this whole situation you think Jess? I'm pretty sure it's not a cryptid sliding down the mountain eating people and sliding back up. No it actually isn't and the detail that gives it away is actually the location Rico Colorado. So it turns out that Rico Colorado really did exist but the town was not flattened by explosives in an effort to thwart this monster. The truth is that like many other boom towns of its day it fell into disrepair following a economic downshift. This was a popular place to mine silver, and when the silver dried up, so did the town. Now, you've all seen mines before up in the mountains, and you can see how they look like rock has slid down the mountain. And this was probably what was seen when the lumber industry came into town and took over immediately after the mining industry declined. So when the lumber industry came in, the lumberjacks saw that the buildings were dilapidated and that there was these almost looked like rock slides going on. They kind of made up this story of this man-eating mountain whale, right? Right. So next time you're hiking through the Colorado mountains, you can relax. Because the stories of a man-eating mountain whale are probably not true. Probably? Yes, probably. All right, so we've got one more cryptid that we're going to talk about in this episode, and this one I think is probably my favorite. It's called the Funeral Mountain Terror Shot, and this creature is uh, explosive. <laughs> so I think the first thing that we need to establish, Jess, is where are the Funeral Mountains? Yeah, well, the Funeral Mountains are about 100 miles south of Death Valley in California. Yes, 
So being near Death Valley, this is not a very hospitable place. No, not at all. Definitely not the type of place you would want to live or the type of place that you would want to be traveling through as pioneers. And it was pioneers who first made reports of this beast. And this is another one of those stories that appears in Cox's book. Yeah, and he also gave it a scientific name, which is Funeral Corpus Displosium, which is a combination of the words funeral, body, and explosion. <laughs> so you can tell by its name that this creature is a bit explosive. Here is the excerpt from the book. This animal explains the origin of the name of the Funeral Range, California. The creature has a casket-like body, six to eight feet long, with a shell running the whole length of its back. Its four legs are long and wobbly, causing the terror shot to sway uncertainly from side to side and forward and backward as it travels along. The strange beast was first reported by some Mormon emigrants, who observed a peculiar procession entering the desert from a certain mountain range, afterward named the Funeral Mountains. They also witnessed the tragic fate of the creatures. One of the Mormons, aroused by his curiosity, made an investigation which resulted in finding out about all that is known of the terror shot. It seems that the animal lives in the little meadows and parks in the higher portions of the range, where it gradually increases in numbers until by a strange impulse it is seized by a desire to emigrate. They then form long processions and march down into the desert, with the evident intention of crossing to other ranges that can be seen in the distance, but none of them ever gets across. As they encounter the hot sands they rapidly distend with the heat, and one after another they blow up with resounding reports, leaving deep, grave-shaped holes in the sand. Well, that's not bizarre. Mm -mm. So basically, they're like exploding tortoises? I'm picturing giant armadillos. Well, if I'm creating a picture in my mind, I'm imagining like a alligator tortoise. Now, a reprint of Cox's book that came out in 2015 may actually give some additional information as to why these creatures need to explode. And it's because these creatures are actually kind of a living fungus. Mm. Here's the description. The Terra Shot is a bizarre fungus with a woody texture and a vaguely bovine countenance. They are nearly mindless and exist only to feed and spread their spores. A Terra Shot spends months or years feeding in the mountains, planting its spindly legs into decaying matter and drawing nutrients from it much like a mundane fungus. If a Terra Shot cannot find suitable organic material, they may attack animals or humanoids, but these occurrences are relatively rare. The Terra Shot is far more dangerous when it has absorbed sufficient nutrition to breed. The breeding processions of the Terra Shot are a wondrous sight, as up to several dozen of these strange creatures march single file down to lower elevations and into the desert. As the sun rises and the desert begins to heat up, the Terra Shots begin to swell with heat and explode one by one. This spreads their spores over a great distance, and those spores fortunate enough to be blown into a pile of wood or an animal carcass begin to take root and grow into a new Terra Shot. Unfortunately, Terra Shot spores can also develop in the lungs of living creatures, and the Terra Shot grows quickly to maturity in the body of their unfortunate host. This infection manifests as a disease featuring a rattling cough, cold flashes, and a thickening of the skin before the host dies and their body is fully consumed by the fungus. A Terra Shot's body weighs about 200 pounds, but they are quite tall for a medium creature, their long legs may hold their bodies 7 feet in the air. Their bodies are palatable as food, but must be eaten raw to avoid having explosive consequences. There's a lot of food that I can think of that uh, may have explosive consequences. <laughs> like uh, Taco Bell. <laughs> this, this podcast, podcast is, not is not sponsored, sponsored by Taco Bell. Bell. 
What's not weird about a living fungus that travels, lives, eats, and then explodes to reproduce and to wreak havoc on people's lungs? I don't see anything weird about that at all. Me neither. As weird as that is, I would love to see it. (laughs) Yeah, that would be a cool sight to see from a distance. Well, the good news and the bad news is that there have been no recent sightings of terror shots. But if you do happen to see one, keep your distance. This dinosaur mixed with fireworks is dynamite. (laughs) (laughs) Well, folks, I hope that we have entertained you and have provided you with some new information and maybe some new insights into some of the weird cryptids that are out there. If it brings you comfort, please know that none of these creatures have been reported recently, and I don't think that you have anything to really worry about. If you guys have more information on any of these creatures, or if perhaps you've seen one of these creatures, we would love to hear from you. Until then, please be careful in the woods because you never know what type of fearsome creature you might run into. All right, folks, that is going to do it for us. We will see you next time. All right, folks, that is the end of this episode. We want to thank you for joining us and let you know that we appreciate you listening. If you have enjoyed the show, please consider subscribing through your favorite podcast player. You can also find us on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. And if you would like to share an experience, be on the show, or submit a story, you can do that through our email at prairielandparanormalpodcast at gmail.com or through our website at www.prairielandparanormalpodcast.com. So, until next time, remember, don't be normal if you can be paranormal.